Thank you for downloading this podcast by Sheikh Ridwan Ibn Salim. For more podcasts, videos and articles, go to civilizations.org.uk. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Alhamdulillah Rabbil Alameen. Allahumma salli ala Sayyiduna Muhammadin wa alihi wa sahbihi wa sallam. Allahumma iftah alina futuh al-arifin. Wa wafiqna tawfiqa salihin. Wa anfa'na bil-Quran wa al-Zikri al-Hakim. Allahumma anfa'na bima'alamtana wa'alimna bima yanfa'una. Wa zidna ilman yukaribuna minka birahmatik ya arhamar rahimin. Allahumma la sahla illa ma ja'altahu sahla. وانت يا خي يا قيوم تجعل الحزن اذا شئت سهلا سهلا اللهم عذنا من شرور انفسنا ومن سيئات اعمالنا واصلح لنا شاننا كله لا اله الا انت نستغفرك ونتوب اليك اللهم سبحانك لا علم لنا الا ما علمتنا انك انت العليم الحكيم وصلى الله على سيدنا محمد واله وصحبه وسلم and jazakumullah uh, khairan thank you sister sania for um inviting me uh, for these uh, series of talks um it's always great to um, have this opportunity especially with other muslim medics uh, you know to uh, share some of the things that i've learned over the years um there was one of the great scholars of the salaf uh, he used to travel around a lot and when he used to come to a town Uh, if he came into a town and no one no one came to ask him any questions he used to leave that town and say this is a town where knowledge is dead so it's always good to have uh, people that uh, want to learn and uh, and uh, share in uh, knowledge inshallah so um inshallah people will benefit um can i just quickly check uh, Sister Sanya is, is are most of the people um doctors or are they medical students or do you know We have lost uh, Sister Sanya for a moment I'm, I'm assuming you guys are doctors um Okay so the topic today uh, I'm going to share my slides inshallah on the screen so please let me know um please feel free to interrupt uh, during the talk um we don't need to wait till the end for we'll have some time at the end for questions but don't feel the need um we're quite a small group so it's it's absolutely fine if people just want to interrupt uh, talk say something ask a question clarify anything i'm more than happy for that to happen um I think if you just to unmute yourself and talk that would probably be best I can't really read the chat at the same time as uh, talking I'm not really that multitask I'm afraid so if people maybe just um I don't know you I hope you've got permission to unmute yourselves and talk uh, I'm hoping you have anyway Assalamualaikum Sheikh Waalaikum assalam Um I think we're all doctors we're all either trainees or specialists Okay great thank you. Yeah so please just um unmute yourself and talk anytime you want to uh, ask it's quite informal you know I'm happy to hear what people have to say or questions they have uh, rather than just sitting here and talking to you guys and um yeah inshallah uh, I, I think we've been given an hour and 15 minutes but I think we'll try to keep it probably 
Um, I, I know how busy all of you are, uh, so I'll, I'll try to keep it to probably 40 or 45 minutes, I'm hoping, and then have about 10, 15 minutes for questions. Uh, but as I said, just uh, feel free to chip in anytime and ask questions anyway. Um, I'm just going to see how I can share my screen. Can everyone, can everyone see my slides right now? Yeah. Yes. Okay, great. Thank you. All right. So, um, yeah, I mean, I'm currently working as a consultant psychiatrist full time. Um, I'm hoping to cut down my uh, hours of work in, in the future to spend more time in teaching, uh, inshallah, if opportunity comes up. But uh, I've been working full time for the last few years anyway, but uh, still carrying on my teaching part time. Uh, at Hameen College, and we're now currently about to launch a new initiative called London College of Islamic Studies. Um, and that's why it says that on the screen under Hameen Foundation, and uh, we're hope hopefully going to be um, getting a few scholars together uh, in the London, West London area, uh, to be able to teach um, people that want to learn all the way up to Alim level. Uh, so the title today is Islam, Science and Medicine. Um, these are the sort of areas or topics we'll look at today. And also, uh, we will talk a bit about um, prophetic medicine and Islamic medicine that uh, some of you wanted to, uh, wanted me to go into a little bit as well. Uh, so we'll talk about uh, what's called Islamic medicine and what's called prophetic or Tibba Nabawi and uh, what my understanding is of those things. And um, where we are as Muslims uh, and in terms of Islamic knowledge in relation to what we can call Western medicine, although it's now globalized, it's not really Western, it's, uh, but um, if I do say Western medicine, sometimes we can call it modern medicine or allopathic. Uh, all of those terms can be used uh, for the type of scientific medicine that we pra practice nowadays. Um, so going into the historical relation, the his a bit into the history of it, um, there's a really interesting history between um, Islam, Christianity, uh, Greek philosophy and science. Um, Obviously, uh, we don't have time to go in depth into all of that right now, but um, just briefly, what we can say is that the Muslims, uh, early Muslim scholars, um, under the in, in the very early you know very early generations under the early Abbasids, especially, uh, there was a massive uh, translation of Greek. Uh, Greek philosophical and scientific works, as well as um, Indian and Chinese. So the Muslims, obviously, they were following the imperative in the Quran to seek knowledge and the guidance of the Prophet Muhammad وسلم, to seek knowledge. And uh, under patronage of wealthy uh, Muslims, such as uh, the great uh, Khalifa Harun Rashid, who uh, set up the Beit al-Hikmah, the House of Wisdom, um, and that led to the, the, the translation movement and the great intellectual flowering 
of the classical Islamic uh, age. Um, the Muslim scholars were quite, uh, they were very interested in uh, the Greek philosophy, especially Aristotle was a particular favorite of the Muslims. Um, Aristotle, uh, his philosophy was um, characterized by being quite empirical and scientific um, in his treatment of uh, nature and the study of um, nature categorization and so on. And obviously Aristotle uh, developed um, formal logic, um, which the Muslims really liked as well. Um, so the Muslims, they took on uh, Greek philosophy and um, the debate between the theologians and the philosophers went on for many, many centuries and in some ways is still ongoing. So it's, um, it's a long story. Um, but some of the main uh, figures are people like Ibn Sina, after Ibn Sina, before Ibn Sina, you had Al-Farabi. After Ibn Sina, you had Al-Ghazali. And Al-Ghazali is really the sort of orthodox Sunni um, position. And uh, he accepted, uh, you know, many of the uh, aspects of philosophy that he thought were useful and uh, things like Aristotelian logic and so on. But he also rejected a lot of the Greek philosophy, which he felt was against uh, the teachings of Islam, and he wrote a famous book called The Incoherence of Philosophers. Um, and, and the story goes on. Anyway, it didn't end with the Ghazali, uh, but the, it went on uh, and the debate continued uh, between the theologians and the philosophers, Muslim philosophers. The interesting thing about the Muslim philosophers, uh, they, were, they, they, they always retained a belief in the one God and they all, they all retained a belief in the Quran. So great philosophers like Ibn Sina, for example, uh, none of them were atheists. And that was a unique thing. And that, that was what I wanted to draw the, your attention to here, that when the Greek philosophy came to Europe, uh, and it came to Europe in the Renaissance um, period uh, of the, um, uh, well, the, yeah, Renaissance leading on to the Enlightenment, the Enlightenment being in the um, 18th century, uh, but it had already crept in, you know, before that, during the Renaissance and so on. Um, and it came from the Muslims, you know, the, the Greek uh, and uh, Roman works came to Europe through the Muslims, through Arabic works. Um, but when the, when the philosophy came to Europe uh, through the Enlightenment, uh, Christianity was not really able to sustain uh, the, the work of the philosophers and eventually Christianity um, really intellectually couldn't sustain itself uh, in light of uh, Greek philosophy and rationalism and science. So that was a big difference between when, when it came to the Muslims, the Muslim world, uh, the Muslims didn't become atheists they were able to take on the, the philosophy and the science, uh, but maintain uh, belief in revelation. With, with the, with, in Europe, really, because the Bible uh, was, uh, was not able to sustain scientific inquiry, um, eventually, really, in the intellectual progress, uh, Christianity really gave way.
Um, so some of uh, the figures involved were people like Copernicus, who challenged the, the Christian, the Catholic Church's view that the Earth is the center of the universe. And later on, Galileo, same thing. Um, uh, one of the interesting things about um, mental illness, obviously, which is my field, is that in the medieval Christianity, mental illness was seen as possession by evil spirits or demons, demonic possession. And mental illness was also seen as a punishment for sins. This goes all the way back to the Bible. Uh, the Bible talks about Jesus casting out demons, you know, from the possessed person. Um, interestingly, the Muslims, we don't really have that tradition. Uh, we're going to come back to this in a later class, uh, which we're going to talk more in depth about jinn possession and black magic and so on. So I don't want to dwell on it right now, uh, but just to mention that in passing, that uh, the Muslims in the Middle Ages, the Muslim doctors treated mental illness primarily as a physical illness, an illness of the body and the brain. And there were hospitals were set up for uh, patients with mental illness as well as physical illness. And hospitals in the Muslim world were all, always free of charge for patients. Uh, they were always uh, patronized by wealthy um, patrons like princes and kings, uh, sultans and so on. Um, anyhow, inshallah, we'll come back to some of that in later classes. So what is Islamic medicine? Uh, I've put Islamic medicine in inverted commas and also prophetic medicine in inverted commas because what i'm going to suggest to you is that there's actually no such thing as islamic medicine and there's not really any such thing as prophetic or tibban nabawi uh, i'll explain why the muslims they took on the greek uh, medicine that's why islamic medicine is sometimes called yunani medicine yunani means greek uh, so the Muslims literally, they took uh, medicine from the Greeks. Uh, the Prophet, you know, he was not a doctor, he was not a medical doctor, and he did not uh, formulate a theory or a system of medicine. He did, there are some hadith about certain things that are cures for certain things. And obviously the Quran has got a, a few ayahs as well that talks about certain healing properties of certain things, which we'll come back to. But those are just isolated reports and isolated ayahs of Quran. They're not, they don't constitute a theory or a philosophy of medicine. Um, so the Muslims, you know, they, uh, if you look at where Islam expanded, first of all, Islam expanded uh, primarily into what was the previous Persian Empire and also into the Roman Empire. And uh, most of the Romans were Christian and there were a lot of Jewish communities amongst them. And the Persians were fire worshippers, but they also had a lot of Christian and Jewish communities living within the Persian Empire. So the Muslims had now taken over these lands. And so the, 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 those, those people that had been taken over by uh, the Muslims, 
were Jews, Christians, and uh, Persians, fire worshippers. So they already had a tradition, you know, of, of medicine and so on. Uh, and, and most of that goes back to the Greeks. So the key figure uh, in terms of medicine is Galen, uh, one of the Greek uh, doctors. Now, obviously, the Muslims did, once they had taken on the Greek medicine, once they had translated and studied the text of the Greeks, obviously, the Muslims did then take that forward, and they made great advances and, and a lot of uh, refinements. Uh, but essentially, at the base, it was Greek uh, uh, theory of medicine, which was based on the four humors of the body and things like that. And um, yeah, so you had people like Ibn Sina, who I already mentioned as one of the great philosophers. Uh, philosophy was uh, linked to science uh, in the in the in the Middle Ages. So generally, those who were philosophers generally also tended to be scientists and doctors and so on. So Ibn Sina also uh, had a very um, one of the greatest works ever written on, on, on medicine uh, called Al-Qanun. Uh, and much uh, centuries later, it was translated uh, into Latin and, and came into Europe. Um, so uh, Ibn Sina is a very, very key uh, figure uh, for, for, for medicine in the Middle Ages. Uh, so when we talk about prophetic medicine as well, uh, once again, I've put in speech marks. Uh, Tib and Nabawi, um, you've probably heard of. Once again, I think it's a little bit misleading. Um, and mo many Muslims don't realize that there's, there's no such thing as uh, prophetic medicine as such. Uh, the Prophet didn't develop or, or bring us any sort of uh, theory or system of medicine. And actually, because the Prophet and the Sahaba were in such good health, you know, they rarely fell ill. So there's not that much in the Sunnah, to be honest, of uh, cures for different diseases and so on. And that's part of uh, because of their very pure lifestyle and pure environment, pure diet. Uh, they were generally very healthy people. Um, However, we will, we will look at, you know, what the Quran and the Hadith do say. Um, so when you come to looking at the Hadith, um, so there's a lot of books out there. I'm sure you've come across these books called uh, Tibban Nabawi or Prophetic Medicine. Primarily Ibn Qayyim al-Jawziyah is one of the favorite that have been translated into English, I've noticed. Um, what I would say is also be really careful about the Hadith that are in these books. Um, Ibn Qayyim is actually quite good. He will normally tell you how strong the narrations are. But, um, you know, uh, you have to really, uh, we have to really be careful whether some of these hadith may be weak um, and the scholars are using them as well. So the other, the other sort of uh, big division nowadays 
is sort of traditional versus allopathic or traditional versus modern medicine. Um, so under the traditional, you have Greek, you have what we call Islamic, which is actually based on Greek medicine. And then you have other others like Chinese, Indian and so on. Uh, remember the Muslims didn't just take on the Greek, the, the Muslims also took a lot of knowledge from the Chinese and the Indians as well. So the, the, the Muslim physicians actually um, synthesized many of those different traditions, um, but they did predominantly um, prefer the Greeks uh, for, for whatever reason. Uh, just, it's important to remember that uh, sort of modern medicine uh, came about uh, through the sort of 19th century in America the very first medical, modern medical school was uh, opened sometime in the 19th century, funded by the Rockefeller family, the famous oil, oil, um, oil baron family. And um, these sort of modern medical schools were then very quick to dismiss a lot of the traditional forms of medicine, like herbal medicine and so on. And uh, those those people that practice that type of thing were called quacks. Rocker, uh, John Rockefeller, the, the, first, uh, the first of the Rockefeller uh, um, oil barons, who became the most wealthy uh, man in America, his father actually was one of these quacks that used to go around um, giving uh, different types of uh, so-called herbal medi medicines to people, but he was actually a con man. So he wasn't, you know, he wasn't even uh, trained in traditional herbal medicine or anything like that. So his father was uh, notorious for going around to sort of um, in the American, you know, the American villages and things like that and uh, sell people all sorts of different um, cures, so-called cures. Uh, but he was a con man, so, you know, whether that had anything to do with Rockefeller's um, funding uh, remains to be seen. And then you have something called homeopathic medicine. Now, homeopathic medicine, um, obviously, uh, we often just, just dismiss it as a sort of, um, scientifically, it shouldn't work, because as you probably know, the homeopathic remedies, they have they're so diluted that there's there's practically none of the actual um, none of the actual compound left, which is meant to be treating you. Yeah, so it's, it's just it's just basically water. However, many people will swear on home homeopathy, and I know some many GPs also um, do go into homeopathy. Um, I, I came across an interesting article quite some time back in the Lancet. The Lancet uh, ran a meta-analysis. Inshallah, I'll share it with you later. I forgot to share it. For, I, I can share it later on the paper. Uh, it goes back now to about 2005 or something, but there, there, I'm sure there probably have been more up-to-date um, meta-analyses done. Um, but they were quite surprised. Obviously, they, they thought they would find that uh, homeop homeopathic uh, remedies were just placebo. Uh, but what they actually found was that, that they were uh, more effective uh, than placebo. 
on the meta-analysis. So um, that was interesting. Um, and it was published in The Lancet. So um, I don't know if, if any of you come up with any, uh, seen any more recent um, studies of that type. Please do feel free to let us know. Michelle, I will share that paper uh, after the class. I think that um, there was something recently, and I'll have to dig it up, about homeopathy actually yes. not being recognised. And um, I think quite a hardline approach against it, something probably in the last six months that's been out. But I'm sure if I find it, I'll share it. Um, sure, that'd be good, yeah. Um, okay, so uh, as I was saying, the Greek uh, slash Islamic medicine was based on the, the humoral theory, you know, for humors, balance of bodily humors. And the feeling was that imbalance leads to disease. That was a sort of general, idea. I mean, uh, I don't think it's worth getting bogged down. Uh, just give me a second. I just wanted to keep an eye on the time as well, so. Uh, uh, I don't think it's worth getting bogged down on the actual details of that because obviously we don't we, we don't we wouldn't follow um, that sort of traditional humoral theory nowadays it's pretty much uh, not uns pretty unscientific but I think the important thing is there to reflect upon is that the idea of imbalance you know that's how the Muslim physicians uh, you know taking from the Greeks and others they understood illness and disease as being an fundamentally an imbalance uh, within the physical, body uh, and that leads to illness and then the cure was always about trying to correct the imbalance uh, so that, that's probably the important principle which i think we could probably still agree with you know uh, today um concept of tawatur i just want to quickly mention this about tawatur or mutawatir uh, one of the things we have in our uh, teaching which is really important is that you know from the Quran and the Hadith, uh, we have different levels of reliability. Uh, as I mentioned before, some Hadith are quite weak. Um, it doesn't mean that they're not true, but it just means that we, can't, we can only be so sure or we can only be so certain that they actually have come from the Prophet or that they are accurately recorded. Uh, however, then you get some Hadith which are Sahih, uh, which means that they're much, much more reliable and especially when you get to books like Imam Muslim and Imam al-Bukhari, you can have a very, very strong uh, degree of certainty because uh, those, uh, particularly those two Imams, they were very, very strict in their conditions of accepting any hadith in those books. Um, so, but then beyond that, there's, a, there's an idea which is called Tawatur. Uh, this is beyond even uh, Sahih. Uh, because a Sahih Hadith, even though it's uh, it may be very very strong, uh, you can there's always a, a very very small possibility of either error or of it not being authentic, and the scholars recognise that. But there's a different also a different concept uh, which is Tawatur. Uh, to what Tawatur means is uh, if a report has come from so many people that you basically have no possibility of uh, doubt in the authenticity of that report. 
Um, and generally, the scholars, they debated how many people does it take to make it to Watu. Uh, but on average, you could say about 10. If you had the same thing from 10 different people, and they have got no reason to believe that they could have colluded together to mislead you, uh, you would be extremely certain uh, of that thing. Uh, I'll give you an example. Um, many of us, most of us have probably not been to China. Um, right, so um, assume, assuming you have, or think of a country that you've never visited, say something like China. If you have been to China, think of another country you've never visited. And then if I were to say to you, can you be sure that China exists? You've never been there, you've never seen it for yourself. Uh, are you sure that there is such a place as China? Uh, most of us would say, yes, we're 100% sure. We don't have any doubt. Uh, and that's what we call uh, Tawatur. So it's a, it's a report that has come to you from so many different places and so many different times or so many different people uh, that you have absolutely no doubt. So the Quran reaches that level of uh, transmission. The Quran was transmitted by so many people uh, from every generation. And then it was written down very soon after, it was actually written down during the time of Sahaba. But it was transmitted by so many multiple people that we have no doubt uh, in, the, in the text of the Quran. And there are some hadith which reach that level as well. Uh, but not that many, a few hundred only hadith. Uh, the reason why I'm talking about this is because I think in our context, in our day and age, um, especially when we're in the field of medicine or science, uh, we, we, you know, we mentioned how Christianity uh, basically was destroyed by the intellectual onslaught of the, uh, of the um, Enlightenment and, and scientific progress. For us as Muslims, the Quran is, is, has, never been, uh, has never been contradicted by modern science or any advancements in human knowledge. So it's really important for us uh, as Muslim intellectuals or educated Muslims to recognize the difference between what is mutawatir and what is not mutawatir. Because ultimately one day, for example, say there was some scientific developments that contradicted hadith uh, but that hadith is not mutawatir, even if it's sahih, uh, for example, in Sahih al-Bukhari, uh, we would be able to, at an intellectual level, we would be able to say, okay, fair enough, uh, this hadith then is, is not correct. Uh, Alhamdulillah, I mean, for, for Bukhari and Muslim, as far as I know, there's, there's not, not been anything that has contradicted those texts of those two particular books. Uh, but you, you get my you get what I'm trying to the point I'm trying to make is very important for us as uh, Muslims to be aware of the distinction, so that we don't fall into um, problems uh, with uh, scientific advances and so on. We'll skip this slide, inshallah. Uh, now, when we look at modern medicine, uh, the important thing to remember is that modern medicine is built upon a type of uh, philosophical worldview. Um, modern science and medicine uh, portrays itself or thinks of itself as being objective. Um, 
but really there's no such thing as absolute objectivity and uh, anthropologists and other people in within the social sciences have uh, understood that you know and they've realized that um, western scientists and so on who who think they're they're completely objective but there are there are always uh, preconceived notions and ideas deep down that we're functioning within and it's very important for us to identify those um, one of the main fields that uh, investigate these type of thing is anthropology um, i did a masters in uh, medical anthropology so i have got some background in that area uh, what anthropology anthropologists in the 19th century they started off the field started off as a study of other cultures uh, what they used to call at that time exotic cultures and so on but what's happened in the 20th late to, uh, in the in the second half of the 20th century uh, the field of anthropology has turned on itself so uh, what they call the anthropological gaze has turned back onto western uh, civilization itself which is really interesting. Um, so a lot of anthropology now, a lot of anthropologists are actually, you know, studying Western, uh, Western societies and Western civilization. Uh, so they, they, they can, um, they look into a lot of these um, deeper sort of preconceived ideas and so on. Uh, for our purposes today, uh, the, the main, main thing I wanted to just focus on was evolution theory. Evolution theory, um, is pervasive in, in medicine um, and it's pervasive in Western science generally. Um, so it's one of those things that's almost like a religious doctrine in a way. Um, it's where, you know, people, uh, scientists are just meant to accept that it's a fact. Uh, even as Muslims, we may not realize that we're quite affected by some of these ideas. Uh, what's the idea of uh, evolution? And th there's also two related ideas within Western civilization, which are at the very, very core of Western civilization, modern Western civilization. And those two ideas are science and progress. Science and progress linked to, which is linked to evolution, because evolution is an idea of continual progress, continual improvement on nature. So what I'm going to suggest today is that uh, the Quranic worldview is fundamentally opposed to that worldview, that things can always improve and improve and improve. Um, and why I say that is because the Quran says that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created everything in balance. Allah created the human being in a perfect form. And Allah has subjugated everything in the heaven and the earth for the human being to serve the human being. So the Quran doesn't give us an evolutionary picture in the sense of uh, sort of survival of the fittest, that, that, that man and other animals are in a constant struggle against their environment and against each other. And uh, the genes that are most well suited to the conditions will survive and there'll be this constant evolution. Some of those things, you know, we just take those for granted because we've been brought up in the Western system. But if we look at the Quran, the Quran doesn't give us that picture. Uh, so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, A'udhu billahi minash shaitanir rajeem. Laqad khalaqna al-insana fi ahsani taqweem. We created man in the best stature. 
if man is created in the best stature, by definition, then you can't improve on the best. You know, so there can't be any improvement. According to evolution, uh, maybe in a million years' time, human beings will have four arms because four arms are better than two or whatever, you know, you know, you know what I'm trying to say. Um, but Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said, a man is created in the best stature, so you can't improve on what is already best. Also, Allah says, He created everything in the earth for you, for human beings. And and many other ayahs of the same theme that Allah has subjugated for you everything that is in the heavens and the earth. So everything is in the service of the human being. We don't really have this idea of the human being in a constant struggle against his environment and so on and so forth. In fact, it's a, and, and even the idea that human beings uh, are like, you know, this idea of the savage, primitive human being that is the cavemen that are always fighting each other, uh, you know, with clubs and battering each other and the strongest one survives. Even that is actually a certain philosophical um, idea and not, and you know, people have challenged that idea as well. Philo other philosophers have challenged that idea. Uh, that actually human beings are not always fighting each other. Human beings are social. Human being, the nature of the human being is to help one another. You know, uh, if you look at some places like, if you go to countries like Syria where law and order broke down, there was no government, there's no police, everything broken down, people help each other. You know, when there's hard times and there's scarcity of food or water, are people all fighting and killing each other? No, they're helping each other. So there's two views, you know. Uh, the, the point here is um, that the scientific worldview with the evolutionary basis leads scientists to believe that they can improve on nature. You know, so this is the whole basis of science that we're constantly improving, we're constantly getting better. We can, we can, we can improve on nature. And this is the thing that I would challenge from an Islamic point of view, uh, which uh, we've shown some eyes of Quran, because when we talk about nature, what we're talking about is the creation of Allah. So as, from a, as an Islamic scholar, I would say, what Allah has created is the best. You know, so natural is best. And you can't beat natural products. Uh, it's interesting that the Quran also talks about shaitan, Iblis, that this is one of the ayahs, uh, Surah, uh, Surah An-Nisa, verse 118-119 here, you can see. One of the things that Iblis said, shaitan said to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, I shall lead them astray and I shall command them and they will cut off the ears of the cattle and I shall command them and they will change the creation of Allah. They will change the creation of Allah. So this is something that shaitan is saying to Allah that I'm going to make human beings, I'm going to lead them astray 
so that they would change the creation of Allah. So within our Islamic teaching, we do have an idea where we don't change the creation of Allah. The creation of Allah is the best creation. Um, even to this, even apply to the, the point of, you know, uh, men or women changing their appearance by certain uh, things, cosmetic, what you might call plastic cosmetic surgery nowadays. Um, I mean, it's, a, it's, a, it's a, something that's a debate between ulama. Obviously, certain things that are physical, um, that are physical deformities, you know, I would argue probably can be changed. But just for purely cosmetic reasons, the, the ulama tended in the classical text to uh, dislike uh, those things because you're not then pleased with what Allah has uh, created. Uh, anyway. I haven't got time, unfortunately, to go into that too much right now, but we can always come back to that. Uh, this is the Tibba Nabawi book uh, that I was talking about, Ibn Qayyim al Jawziyah. Uh, you've probably seen this on Muslim bookshops and things like that. Uh, what does it say in the introduction? Uh, this, is not, this is not Imam uh, Ibn Qayyim saying this. This was uh, an article on a web, prominent website that I found, uh, just a quote saying prophetic medicine, otherwise known as Tibba Nabawi, is a complete code of medicine that was gifted by Allah to the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu through Wahi. So this is what I'm challenging here. And, and just to show you that this is quite widespread amongst general Muslims. So they, they have this, you know, this person's making this statement, not really author, not really qualified to know what they're talking about. Uh, to by saying that it's a complete code of medicine, which is not true at all. If you look at Ibn Qayyim al-Jawziyah's book itself, which is called Prophetic Medicine, you will see straight away, or very soon after you start reading it, you'll see that most of what he's bought is actually Yunani Greek medicine. So Ibn Qayyim himself was a scholar who was a qualified doctor in the Islamic Yunani medicine but what he did was that he tried to bring in those ayahs of Quran and the Hadith and incorporate that into that wider Greek Islamic system of medicine. Um, so that's quite an important uh, distinction to make. Okay, so I'm gonna uh, quickly finish inshallah by giving three, I wanna give three quick examples from real life to show where the sort of Western scientific model clashes with our Islamic, what should be, uh, I argue, our Islamic understanding and how um, as Muslims, we should, have, we should be aware of uh, these things from day one. But sadly, uh, as Muslim intellectuals and scholars, we have been lacking and we've sort of been running after uh, Western science and medicine without really uh, bringing the knowledge from our own tradition uh, and trying to make a, a fusion. You know, we need to take what's best from Western modern medicine, and uh, but also not to forget our own principles that are in the Quran and other places, so that we can come to a good uh, 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 fusion between the two systems. 
so example number one uh, is uh, this ayah of Quran where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, has talked about milk that comes from cattle. So what Allah said about the milk, he said, We give you to drink what is in the belly of the cattle between the, uh, the, the, the intestines and the blood, a milk which is pure and good or pure and tasty for those who drink it. Now, obviously, what my argument here is that as Muslim scholars, when we see the Quran talking about that Allah is giving us this drink as a pure drink, we should have realized that when you pasteurize milk, you heat it up and you destroy a lot of the stuff that's in the milk. Uh, my argument is that as Muslims, we should have flagged up, you know, in our heads, wait a minute, Allah's described this as a drink he's made for us, a pure drink. Uh, but pasteurization was meant to improve the milk by killing off bad germs and so on. However, now many people are now turning back to raw milk. Many people in the West, I'm talking about non-Muslims, have found out that raw milk is really good for you. Raw milk meaning unpasteurized milk. And what they found out is actually the, the, the pure milk doesn't have bad bacteria. This used to be because in farming, you know, using dirty utensils and dirty buckets and things like that, that's what would transmit the infections. The milk itself is pure and it doesn't carry uh, uh, problematic uh, diseases. So people like Prince Charles and other famous people have been drinking raw milk for many years now. It's been in the newspapers that it's like, you know, an amazing, um, because why the raw milk has got uh, a lot of antibodies in there. Um, one one uh, scientist described it as literally the white blood. It's like the white blood. It's just the red blood cells removed, but it's got all of those other white uh, blood cells and so on. So they did some uh, uh, um, controlled studies on uh, asthma, allergies, and this was in one of the London colleges. Uh, I think I've got the reference there, University of London it says, but it doesn't give which one it was. Anyway, you guys can look into that if you want to, but um, what they found was quite dramatic. Uh, just by drinking one glass of raw milk once a week, uh, these people, they had much less um, incidence of asthma and other allergies, uh, things like eczema, you know, immune-related uh, conditions. So what I'm saying is, you know, as Muslims and as scholars, we should have, we shouldn't have had to go through this process of just blindly following uh, scientists and going into pastoral. We should have thought back to the Quran and saying, actually, no, raw milk is something that Allah has created and it's going to be a perfect creation. Second example, the appendix. Uh, I don't know if any of you are surgeons. I know 
obviously brother Kamran is a surgeon and he but I don't think he's online right now um, but I'm sure you'll know anyway back from your medical student days and so on that well actually you might know but you might be quite younger than me but uh, I know when I was a medical student they used to say the appendix is a vestigial organ meaning it's it's, uh, it's it has no use it's from the days when we used to be um, animals before we evolved into human beings. Um, so it was widely believed during that time when I was uh, graduating in the 90s and so on, that the appendix had absolutely no role to play within the human being. And it was just left over from our previous evolutionary um, states. So what doctors used to do when they were carrying out surgery to the abdomen, often many surgeons would just snip off the appendix because they thought, well, it's useless, it's no use, and, and it will just uh, be a prophylactic for appendicitis in the future. Did any of you guys come across that, that practice, uh, just out of interest? Or are you too young uh, to remember that? No, no, absolutely. I think that's definitely the case. Yeah, I don't, I don't think it's still going on because I think, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, in more recent years, then they realized actually a lot of research started coming out that um, the appendix probably does have uh, um, some uh, role in the immune system. I've just got a journal article here as a reference in which uh, was mentioning, they used to call it incidental appendicectomy. So you just snip off the appendix when you're just doing a unrelated operation. My point here is that as Muslims, once again, as Muslims and, and uh, scholars and doctors with knowledge of Quran and Islamic principles, we, we would never have accepted that because we know that Allah created the human being in the best stature and the best form. Uh, so it just wouldn't make sense that the that this thing would just be a completely useless organ uh, within the human being, and so we 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 should not have done that in the first place, based on our principles. Um, but this is somewhere where um, I think Islamic scholarship has also been very lacking, and uh, mainly because you know you do have a lack of uh, scholars that are also uh, doctors. So this is an article, you know, the appendix may have a purpose after all, and so on. And third and final example, infant formula milk. You, you probably, once again, I don't know if you guys are old enough, but um, certainly when I was young, there was a massive uh, push towards formula milk rather than breast milk. I mean, nowadays you just think that was completely bizarre because it's gone completely back the other way. Uh, but at that time in the 70s and 80s, early 80s, uh, scientists were basically saying, look, we've created this formula milk, which is better than breast milk. Uh, it's, it's much better for the babies. It got to the point of um, sort of the advertising got to the point where women felt really guilty if they were not buying infant formula milk and feeding it to their babies and giving them breast milk. They actually felt guilty uh, that they were being very negligent mothers. So it sounds bizarre to believe, but it's believe me, it's true. If you ask your older uh, colleagues, GPs, you know, who are GPs in the 70s and 80s, uh, they'll tell you. Um, so breastfeeding became almost like uh, for the poor people, you know, working class people, 
who were backward and so on. Obviously, it was all about making money as well. Once again, uh, my point here is that as Muslims at that time, if we had good scholars and, and, and scholars and doctors that were coming together, based on our Islamic principles that Allah has created the human being and Allah's created that breast milk, it's going to be the best thing for the baby. We should know that from our own principles. We shouldn't have had to wait 10 to 20 years. I mean, I was one of those babies that was brought up on formula milk because my mother was told that it's best for you. So um, obviously um, later on, uh, it became uh, quite established that actually breast milk is so much better uh, for the young child. And so everything reversed back to pushing breast is best and all that stuff, right? Uh, these are some of the sort of studies at the time, Lancet 2003, talked about how so many millions of children could be saved if they were just given breast milk rather than being given all of this formula milk. The sad thing was that some of these formula milk manufacturers are still, despite having all the evidence, they were still pushing the formula milk in poorer countries, even though it became illegal to do so in these uh, uh, advanced countries. Uh, so I've given us some uh, references for that, but I'm going to skip over that right now. Um, uh, sorry, just last example quickly, butter or margarine. I'm sure you as doctors have, have come across this as well. Um, at, at one point, everyone was saying, yeah, eat margarine. Scientists have, have, have basically improved. The natural thing was butter. This is what Allah's created, butter. But scientists have now improved. They've given you something that you, you don't have to get all of the bad things in butter. You can drink, you can eat margarine. Right? You remember those days? Uh, and so as doctors, GPs, you know, we were all telling our patients, oh, no, don't eat butter. There's too much cholesterol and all that stuff. And you better all go to margarine. So once again, uh, in, in recent years, um, a lot of evidence started coming out that actually margarine is not so good, uh, trans fats and all that stuff. And so everyone's now realized that actually butter was better all along. Once again, as Muslims, uh, with that those principles that we mentioned, it should have been something that we, we should have uh, been able to, to, to know from our own basic principles. Okay, that's the end of the slides. Uh, sorry, I, I did go on a little bit uh, more than I wanted to, but alhamdulillah, we finished in less than an hour anyway, so hope it wasn't too much for a uh, Wednesday evening. Happy to take any questions. Yeah, Very, very interesting. So, um, yeah, inshallah, if anybody wants to, how would you like the question for people to just unmute or put their hand up? Yeah, unmute, I think, Cece, yeah, yeah. Or yeah, however you want to do it. So if you want to ask, you just easily get on mute and uh, ask your question. Thank you, Sheikh. Uh, I never knew all this uh, and it's a little bit of a surprise. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I have um, a question that might be quite controversial. I was wondering where do vaccines come into natural 
a natural exposure to a virus. I'm not an anti-vaccine person. I've had the COVID vaccine myself, but now that I'm, I've been, I've, I've had all this information. It is an artificial exposure to an artificial made-up virus. So I was just wondering what your personal thoughts were on the subject. Yeah, I mean, so obviously, I mean. Um... I hope my thing hasn't come across as too anti-medicine. Obviously, I'm not saying that at all. I think there's huge, huge advances that have been made in, in Western and modern medicine, undeniable. And uh, what my point is though, however, we also have some principles that can help, you know, and we need to, unfortunately, I don't think that has been done, you know, that, that work that needs to be done of uh, bringing the Islamic principles and the, the Quranic worldview and, and incorporating that into modern medicine, uh, that hasn't been done, uh, but needs to be done. Um, it's obviously like a lifetime work or whatever. But uh, so yeah, I mean, um, there's, there's a lot of things that are very, very uh, uh, good. Um, in terms of vaccines, it's, it's a difficult question. I think there's so many different aspects to it. Um, but I think generally I'm one of those people who, you know, none of my children were vaccinated, for example, not because I, don't, I think vaccines don't work or they're, they're you know, there's any, uh, anything like that. I just, um, for the type of like measles, mumps and things, I just, um, I didn't feel, uh, the different things. I mean, one thing is, you know, a small baby or a small child to have a, a painful needle going in their arm for me was not a good experience uh, for a child. Especially now, as soon as a baby is born, they, they want you to give a BCG um, injection and things like that, you know. And also, you know, so the whole idea of prophylactic medicine, I think uh, there's no clear uh, black or white answer from, from an Islamic point of view. Um, something like polio, for example, um, I, would, I would give my children a polio vaccination if they were going to travel to places like Pakistan or well, it's not now, it's, it's much rare now. I think it's almost eliminated, but um, uh, I think with the, I mean, obviously I've had the COVID jab myself. Well, I mean, all of us probably have to really in our profession, but um, I also did think about it. And I, I think on balance, I felt it may be a bit irresponsible of me not to have it because, you know, I've also got elderly parents, I've got other people around me. So it's not just about yourself. You have to think about society and everyone around you as well. Um, so I think on balance, um, I would I would recommend people to have the COVID immunization myself. I, I don't think it's an issue of these principles that we've talked about, uh, nature and so on, because there's an illness and we have a cure or a, a preventative cure for it. So I don't see it as uh, contradicting. You know, Islam doesn't say that there's not disease and there's not cure. Islam doesn't say that. Thank you, Sheikh. I think Norris has um, raised his hand. Norris, do you want to unmute? Just a quick query on um, Islamic psychology. So there's a, obviously a more recent growth in Islamic psychology and principles of Islamic psychology. I was just wondering whether there's a parallel with Islamic medicine. Uh, I guess more, more typically this uh, notion of Islamicization of knowledge. Uh, I don't know if you have any particular views on that. 
So yeah, I have a lot of views, I'm afraid. <laughs> I don't want to bore you guys all, you know, all evening. Um, inshallah, I'm going, uh, one of the further classes will be focused on um, Islamic uh, mental illness and psychology and psychotherapies and things. So we'll come back to that. But uh, uh, just briefly for now, um, I think it's a very interesting field. You know, I, I am planning to write some stuff myself at some point. Uh, I think there's a lot of scope, uh, a lot of things that um, has come quite fashionable recently, like mindfulness and those type of things that we already had that within our Islamic tradition um, uh, in, in our Quran and our Hadith and so on. So a lot of that I think is, is, is very interesting. Um, so inshallah, we'll, we'll talk about it in more depth later on. Uh, and, and generally the idea of Islamicization of knowledge as well. Uh, this is, I think, what I was alluding to when I talked about um, Western medicine and Islamic worldview. Because the Western medicine is based upon the Western worldview. And as Muslims, we have a, we have a Quranic worldview. And um, there are differences. Once again, the field of anthropology is quite, quite good uh, when looking into these sort of uh, issues. Uh, there are very, very deep fundamental differences. Um, some of them I, I feel are irre irreconcilable, irreconcilable um, because, for example, we believe in an akhirah. We believe in a judgment. Uh, these people don't. So that's a massive difference to many, that impacts on many, many different practical things, you know, within our practice of medicine as well. It impacts massively. Uh, if, you, if you don't believe there's an akhirah, if you don't believe there's a, a judgment, uh, this life is everything, that, that changes a lot of how you view illness, disease, end-of-life decisions, and all sorts of things. Um, so, yeah, there's definitely a great need for an Islamicization of uh, medical, uh, modern medical theory. I think Shazia and then Hannah. Yeah. Sorry, it's not Shazia. Assalamualaikum. It's Khurram. I'm, I'm with my, my wife. Um, oh, Khurram, how are you? Alhamdulillah. It's good to... Thank you very much. Uh, um, you should be giving the talk. I didn't realise you were online. No, no. It, 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 it's, it's actually really beneficial to hear from you. Oh. Uh, thank you for this. Thank you for your time. Um, would it be... Would it be... You know, a question, and then I, I guess I'm leading to a comment as well. Would, yeah. would, would it be okay to do that? Yeah, um, please. Yeah, I do. I... I um, I, I suppose the question is that, you know, would it be fair to say that there's a variance of opinions with regards to um, uh, um, uh, Islamic medicine and the definition of it and how to, um, how to reconcile it with, um, uh, uh, with modern medicine? So, for example, like you would you'd, you'd find some traditional scholars who'd be like consider, consider themselves herbalists and they take, for example, from the Hadith of the Prophet. Um, of Aisha radiallahu anha, and she, you know, she was asked, "How did she know about her medicine?" And she said that, that when the when the delegations came to the Prophet in the last like two three years, alayhi salam, that um, he would be he would ask about their 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 herbs and the spice and, and and the different treatments, and that she learned it from them. So there would be a contingent that would do so, as well as a contingent of um, scholars who who would say. Um, uh, that Islamic medicine is like, is actually, that's just what's based on tajruba, you know, just based on what we'd almost call evidence-based. 
yeah. and then um, and even a variance in terms of it. And th would it be fair to say that there's not uh, been a um, a consensus opinion developed, um, and and it's still a developing field, or or do you think it's do you think it's got to a point that um, um, it has got? And I, I just wanted to give you an idea in terms of with regards to that. For example. Um, um, Umar al-Bahraq, uh, who's a sheikh of the like ninth century, he's got a beautiful, he's a muhaddith, and he's got a, he's got a, his own risala on medicine, he's got his own treaties on medicine. And what you find, very similar to him and Josie's and others, you find that he has three sections in it. But the first section is literally, it's just, it's the humor theory, the Greek theory, just like you mentioned, it's, it's the Unani theory. The second aspect is his, um, his, his derivation of the herbs according to that but what's really interesting is perhaps the third which you've, you're really indicating towards the end in terms of serving the quran um through medicine and serving perhaps even the shamal of the prophet because what he talks about in that third aspect is um the, the the prophetic um behavior and this companion's behavior that allowed them to ward off many illnesses and live healthy lives. You know, physical exercise, unprocessed foods. Um, yeah. and, and so what you find then is that, uh, so he's giving his view. And so it may be easy, it may be a good, it may be an important point to discount the first two, but the third, which is like this serving of the Quran and the, the prophetic side, alayhi salam, uh, of medicine, what you find then is that actually, um, that's almost a, 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 the miracle of the Islamic medicine, if you were to call it Islamic medicine, in that the difficulty we have in terms of empirically proving health, improving healthy lifestyles. So there's, there's two aspects to, to, one, to the first question. Do you think there's a, a point of consensus that's reached with regards to this or, or a different opinions? And the second point is that you know, medicine, the most difficult thing that it has today is in terms of like promoting healthy lifestyle and what it involves. And we've had like the huge controversies with regards to carbs versus fats and margarines versus butter and, and so forth and so forth. But if you return back to the prophetic um, um, practice and the Quranic practice, that's a real benefit that we gain. Um, sorry. No, thank you. It's very beneficial. For your comments, in terms of the consensus, do you think there is a consensus getting to a point, or do you think that, um, or, or the variance of views are like, you know, it's almost as if like the, the minor variances of views? To, to be honest, you know, Quran, I personally feel there's no, there's not, no one's uh, really dealt with it to to reach a consensus. I think yeah. generally what tends to happen is like a, it's like a what do you call it, like a divergence, you know, either traditional or modern medicine. You're either one camp or the other, or homeopathic or allopathic. You know what I mean? They, they don't really... So I don't think anyone's tried to Islamicize Western modern medicine. I think people just tend to go into one camp or the other, which is, I think, is totally wrong. Um, so, no, so I don't think uh, many... I think that work remains to be done. And it will require uh, people like yourself and myself that have studied medicine and also studied Islamic sciences 
you're going to need we're, we're the sort of people that are going to have to do that type of work uh, that are in the position to do that but part of doing that is we'll also have to then study traditional herbal medicines and things like that which is is a massive undertaking really for anyone yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, so I think, but I think, um, I think my point still stands that if you look at Ibn Ibn Qayyim al Jawziyah and any of these other uh, books on prophetic medicine, um, there's there's generally two things like I think you like you mentioned really. Yeah. Um, one is there are actual herbal or there are actual medicines or cert or certain things that have certain medicinal properties. And these are very limited, I'd say. So there's things like obviously honey in the Quran we all know about. Um, the, uh, the Quran itself is a shifa uh, in the Quran. And in the Hadith, there are a few things as well, like, you know, the black seed, etc., etc. People probably know about some of them. And here I'd say, once again, you know, stick to what is uh, uh, sahih, is quite important uh, when we come to this stage of looking into the Hadith. Um, but I think they are quite limited. And then there's another aspect of sort of prophetic medicine, which is like the healing power of the Quran, uh, Ruqya, things like that. So that's the separate thing. I don't, you know, obviously we accept that. That's there's no doubt about that. Um, but I, I don't think that comes into like a, a model of physical model of medicine. Um, so I think I think my point. I would still maintain my point that in terms of a a theory of medicine, you know. Yeah. Uh, generally, the Muslim physicians, even those that had the prophetic knowledge, they were they were they were under the framework of Greek, the Greek model, the humoral model. But they brought in the things that they found in the Quran and the Hadith, like honey and black seed and etc. etc. They would they would bring those in as well. And Ibn Qayyim said that those are the most reliable because they're based on revelation. Whereas all of the other herbal stuff that's come from tradition, as you said, it was um, it was empirical. You know, it was based on hundreds and hundreds of years of just experimentation, really, with different herbs and plants and things like that. Um, he said, you know, that's 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 come through tajruba, come through experience. Uh, but the things that we have from the Quran or the Hadith are of a higher level of certainty, because obviously they've come straight from revelation. Um, yeah, I hope that sort of answered. The Thank question. you. That's really helpful. Allah bless you and us. Yeah, please Inshallah. come back uh, with any further comments and things, you know. Inshallah, listen on. Thank you. Happy Thank to you. Do, uh, make it into a discussion. I mean, these are just my thoughts as well. I'm, I'm you know, um, hey, I'm really open to other. No, it's really valuable. I, really valuable. Thank you. Jazakum <laughs> I've just got a final comment and then inshallah we'll wrap up just in the interest of time. So uh, I think this has been quite a fascinating talk and I think it's always been really confusing. Is it sort of Greek medicine? Is it revelation? Where, do, where does the balance sit? Um, and an element of quackery and abuse of people. So I think it's, it's factoring in all of those things and, and the amana that we have as, as medical practitioners. Um, for those, you know, most people in the group know that I have an interest in lifestyle medicine. So... I went off and I did um, some training in functional medicine, which is basically, you know, very close to our Islamic teachings, really. And the more you look at it, it's, it's very close to the, how the Prophet Sallallahu lived his life. And I think sometimes we get really caught up on the, the nitty gritty of, of certain things. I think completely in terms of, you know, 
what a less panda has given us and in terms of butter it contains not just omega-3 if it's from an organic they absorb particularly raw butter but also butrate which you find in the ghee which you've been told is terrible but it's a short chain fatty acid that heals and seals the gut basically and drives down inflammation in the gut and the brain so it's quite amazing but it's still not mainstream medicine but I think yeah. more and more what I see is this as you say this concept of balance so the balance between stress how we're living our lives balance between our diet, our worship, our relationships, all those things. And I think the ultimate example of that is with the Prophet Sallallahu And many of the problems that we have, I think, you know, are, are lifestyle type problems, environment. Um, and it's, it's been really lovely actually to hear, hear your thoughts. Um, so I just want you want to thank you, Sheikh Udwan, and also lovely to hear from you, Sheikh Khurram. Um, and uh, thank you for joining us. So, Sheikh, would you like to um, close with du'a, inshallah, and then I can send a recording out on the chat, or if you want to put a recording on the chat, so, you know. Jazakumullah, yes. Yeah. So maybe, uh, inshallah, yeah. Allahumma taqabbal minna inna kanta sami'ul alim. Allahumma salli wa sallim ala seyyidina Muhammad wa Mustafa wa alih. Subhana rabbika rabbil izzat amma asifun wa salamun ala al-mursalim. Alhamdulillah, rabbil alamin. Jazakumullah khairan. Assalamu alaikum. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For more content like this, go to civilizations.org.uk.